morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of you from wherever you may be joining us from. My name is Charlotte Hebebrand from IFPRI's Communications and Public Affairs team. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to the seminar on reforming agricultural policies and farm support to advance sustainable food system transformation. Part of the CJR series on strengthening food systems resilience with kind support from the German Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development. For food systems to become more inclusive, resilient, sustainable, and healthy, they must be transformed. Policies and financing will be required for successful transformation. And that is the topic of today's seminar. We're excited to hear from you. We will have two separate um, Q&A sessions in the program. So please do submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. To help tee us up today, it's my great pleasure to turn over to Jo Swinnen. He is the Director General of IFPRI, as well as the Managing Director for the Systems Transformation Science Group and the CGIR. And Jo will talk to us about the importance of the repurposing agenda and how it figures in the work of the CGIR. Over to you, Jo. Uh, thank you very much, Charlotte. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Um, it's the next seminar in the series of um, CGIR-BMZ uh, joint uh, seminar series, and I would like to start by thanking BMZ for the support that they have given us uh, for basically coming to us for organizing this seminar, and it's been a great success so far, and I expect today's to be very successful and very uh, yield great interest and attendance as well. Uh, you will hear from um, Jan Briggs, who is a senior policy officer at BMZ, uh, next on this in uh, giving their perspective on, on the seminar series and the issues uh, more broadly. Today, uh, we have a very important topic and we have a, very, a fantastic lineup of speakers uh, discussing this topic. Repurposing is at the heart of food system transformation. Uh, we all know that food system transformation is really crucial to address, uh, to make the world's uh, some of the greatest challenges that the world is facing to address these. Um, we think about nutrition, food security, climate change, biodiversity, uh, poverty reduction, etc. We also know that we need investments and we need change incentives to make this happen. So that brings the finance or that makes the finance question very central to food systems transformation. In the preparation of the Food Systems Summit of uh, in 2021, IFPRI co-led the finance lever together with colleagues from the World Bank and FOLU, and we identified several components of a new food finance agriculture, uh, sorry, food finance architecture for agriculture and food system transformation. Now, this uh, food finance ar uh, architecture for the future has several components. Some of them are public, some of them are private, some of them are new, and some of them are about existing uh, sources, uh, public and private, and redirecting them, repurposing them going forward. And so I think particularly today we'll talk about the repurposing of public support. And um, it is a very intriguing and very, uh, it's a great opportunity, I think, also to think about it and to, to change it because the funding is there. It is already spent. It is large. We talk about $800 billion uh, across the world per year. So that's large in general, but it's also large in comparison to the investments that are needed. And it is not helping the transformation right now. And in fact, many people would argue that it's doing exactly the opposite. So all this makes it a very intriguing uh, issue, a very uh, great opportunity as well, if we can change that 
as an engine of change, as an engine of, of transformation. Now, often it's been said that this is an issue of rich countries and emerging countries, because the US, the EU, China really have the, the a large share of this $800 billion spending. However, if you look into um, the public spending in developing, country, in developing countries, also the policy uh, uh, structure that is there, we see that while the dollars may be lower, if you look at that, the share of, uh, of public support uh, to agriculture spent on the type of policies which are not helping food systems, it is large there as well. So this is really an issue which is relevant both for rich countries and poor countries. And today we'll hear have perspective from both uh, sides of the world, if you want, or if you look uh, all sides, because there's an emerging country perspective as well. The um, An important question, there's several important questions that need to be addressed. So one is, what's the best way of reform through changing incentives, through reallocating investment, right? IFRI has done a lot of work on this together with colleagues from the World Bank, from FAO, from OECD, and so we will hear from them uh, today, uh, giving their perspective, their findings and their recommendations. And actually, Will Martin is representing the, the IFPRI team here. We also will hear perspective from our colleagues at the World Bank, Sergei Zorias with us, and Debbie Palmer from FCDO, who has supported a lot of uh, this work. We're also very pleased to have Lorraine Ronke on the, on the program today. Lorraine is doing fantastic work as a senior advisor at CGIR. She is on secondment from the World Bank and as such is actually building bridges between science and innovation investments and finance. And I think this has huge potential going forward. Another question is, of course, what uh, we need to do to make this happen. What are the country experiences and perspectives? And for this uh, I really look forward to hear from our colleagues from, from Brazil, who is Brazil is sharing the G20, uh, will be hosting the COP uh, next year. So we will really, it will be great to hear their perspective and how this fits in the policy agenda there. We'll hear from Ghana, from Patrick Ofori, and then uh, Schengen is with us, Schengen Fan, who will talk about China, which has gone through a series of policy reforms, also going uh, a bit back and forward, I would say. And so really great to hear his perspective on this. And finally, Alan Matthews is with us. Alan is a, um, he has been following EU policy for uh, decades and is very well placed to see, I mean, the question is there, will the EU's Green Deal survive the farmer protest in Europe at this point? And I really look forward to hear all their perspectives. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yo. Jan, can I turn over to you? We know that uh, BMZ is very interested in the repurposing agenda, and we look forward to you also helping us to, to open the, uh, the discussion. Sure. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Johan. Dear colleagues, uh, dear listeners, uh, it's my uh, great pleasure to welcome you to this um, today's policy seminar, also from our side. First of all, I want to thank IFPRI for hosting our joint um, CGIAR-BMZ policy seminar series. And for over 50 years, CGIAR has been a leader in delivering critical science and innovation to transform agriculture and food systems. As Germany, we are a committed partner and supporter of the CGIAR and the one CGIAR reform. And we are proud to celebrate our 50th anniversary for funding the CGIR this year, actually. Uh, the reform process has, for the first time, positioned CGIR visibly at the forefront of shaping global agendas. To me and to us, this seminar series is a great example of leveraging CGIR expertise, expertise for transforming agriculture and food systems. 
We are convinced that research plays a very critical role in driving transformative changes in agriculture and food systems. And we are aware of the enormous challenges that lie ahead of us. Therefore, BMZ has significantly increased its annual funding in, to CGIAR in recent years and nearly doubling our support. But when it comes to paving the way for more sustainable, healthy, resilient and fair agricultural and food systems, coherent and smart agricultural policies are essential. I think that's obvious to all of us. Today's public support to agriculture amounts to over 850 billion US dollars per year. Far too much of this support, however, sets wrong incentives, is unevenly distributed and harmful to the environment and human health, as we all know. To address this and repurpose harmful agricultural subsidies, BMZ has invested 85 million euros into the multi-donor trust fund Food Systems 2030 of the World Bank for the repurposing agenda alone. Through this, BMZ is supporting five governments in repurposing the agricultural supports towards programs that promote more sustainable, inclusive and resilient agriculture and food systems. In addition, BMZ is funding the global program Sustainable Agriculture Systems and Policies, that is the name, to facilitate the scaling up of a sustainable agriculture policy reform in nine partner countries. And last but not least, we're proud to have welcomed many high-level partners at the site of the Global Agriculture and Food Security Forum this January, together with the World Bank, FCDO and our German Ministry for Agriculture, to, the one, to one of the so-called policy dialogues to drive this agenda further. So finally, um, to um, be short, let me say that I'm very much looking forward to today's webinar and to hearing your scientific, global and regional perspectives on agriculture policies and strategies for repurposing. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jan, and uh, thank you also for the great support to CGIR over now 50 years. That's, that's impressive. Um, we're now turning to a discussion around the science, and uh, Lorraine Ronke is with us. She is a CGIR Senior Advisor for Policy Impact, and she was also part of the writing team of a great uh, a report, Achieving Agricultural Breakthrough, which was part of the um, overall breakthrough report, which was released in advance of COP28. And she's going to uh, provide some teasers of the kind of technological innovations that can help us um, with food systems transformation and that repurposed uh, finance could help uh, perhaps promote. Over to you, Lorraine. Okay, thank you very much. And thank you to Jan and Jo for framing this discussion about the reform of agricultural policy, the reform of agricultural support, and the repurposing of that support. But repurposing to what? Repurposing is not an end of its in itself, of course. And I'm going to talk a little bit um, about repurposing towards a just transition through climate science and innovation. Next. Why would I say that? Um, the you know, if we have a think about what proportion of the world's population rely on the food sector for their livelihood, it's a lot. It's more than half. And a majority of those people are in the global south. The agri-food sector is particularly vulnerable to climate change, which means that producers in the global south are especially at risk. So the idea is that 
technology, tech, uh, technological approaches, science, innovation, and policy breakthroughs lead to just transitions in the agri-food sector. Next slide, please. So um, this word breakthrough, this term breakthrough, and then Charlotte has already sort of alluded to it, comes from the breakthrough agenda that was launched at the Glasgow COP. And it covers, with the agenda comes a report. And the question being, you know, what international collaboration actions can bring a breakthrough in key sectors? So it actually covers several sectors, and, and one of those is agriculture. And last year, a decision was made to focus on, on the scaling of science and innovation. And so the chapter came to the, to the CGIR. Next, please. The team was given, um, the team was led by Dr. Aditi Mukherjee, who is the director for the Climate Impact Platform at the CGIR and this large team of scientists. Next, please. We were given seven technologies. Seven technology areas were specified. You see them up on the screen in front of you. Reduced emissions from fertilizers, alternative proteins, reduced food loss and waste, crop and livestock breeding, reduced methane emissions from livestock, agroecological approaches and digital services. So we did two things. First thing was to have a deep dive report, which you see the image of on your screen right now. And this was diff seven different teams of scientists delving into those seven areas and doing three things. One is to just state the state of science. Here are a bunch of technologies. Here's the scientific evidence behind them. Then they stated uh, what the obstacles to scaling those are, and then they stated some recommendations with regards to that. The second thing we did was write the actual chapter, which was to look across the seven technologies and say, hey, um, what is coming here? Where, how could we maybe frame some broad recommendations that could cut across um, the breakthrough agenda of each of these technologies? Next slide, please. And there were five of these um, recommendations. One was about climate finance, and we all know that we need much more um, climate finance and, and, and hence this conversation about repurposing, but it was quite specific about making sure that there was going to be an increase in finance towards scaling um, approaches and technologies for which science has generated evidence for their impact. The second one of particular importance today is on policies, regulations, and innovations not just to commit to a process, which Jan has already alluded to, and I'm sure we're gonna hear more about, of sort of sharing the experience of repurposing and the redirecting of subsidies, but also um, to have that agenda really look specifically at the facilitation of faster uptake of proven technologies. The third recommendation is around metrics and indicators and standards. And I'm jumping to the fifth, which was around private sector markets and trade. And I wanna come back now to this one, next. RD&D. All right. So research and development of technologies has by now proven to have robustly high returns. So when one is thinking of what the best alternative investment may be um, to meet one's development objectives through the repurposing of, of, of current agricultural support, you can feel pretty confident that by this point, there's been nearly 300 studies showing that the return to agricultural research spending is high in every region and on average. In fact, the median rate of return on investment in agricultural research is on the order of 43% for developing countries. That's very high. Apart from this sort of like broad overview of where we could really make a difference in terms of breaking through, helping science to break through on, on the climate agenda and on a just transition. Um, 
the report also went into sort of granular technology. So Charlotte referred to sort of a teaser. So next slide, please. Um, if we think about repurposing for livelihoods improvement in livestock with obvious mitigation co-benefits, there are a number of technologies that I could have picked from, but let's just focus for a minute on anaerobic digesters or biogas digesters, you know, which break down organic material like manure and generate biogas, but also generate um, fertilizer called digestate. So why is this important? Well, 1.3 billion people depend on livestock for livelihoods and food security. Anaerobic digesters can replace fossil fuels, reducing energy costs for the households, reducing energy costs um, for their um, productive activity. They can replace a good part of costly fertilizers also derived from fossil fuels. So it's about sort of increasing the efficiency and the profitability of their activity through cost reduction. And one of my favorite fun facts, which I have been forbidden to raise at dinner parties, is that if all collectible manure were to be used in the world, um, anaerobic digestion technology could produce enough methane to get electricity for between 330 and 490 million people. Besides the idea that access to electricity is a basic right, one can think about the impact of electrification on productivity, on human health, on GDP, etc. cetera. Um, and of course, with major mitigation benefits. We know that 12% of total emissions come from livestock, 60% of that is methane. And in the case of liquid manure, anaerobic digesters could capture 50 to 70% of that methane. So a key recommendation of the breakthrough report was to redirect public monies to reducing the cost of these technologies so they were accessible. Next slide. The other thing that the breakthrough report did, which I already mentioned, and this is uh, almost at the end here, is that we, we drew out what it is that needed to happen at an international collaboration level at to sort of break through in each of these technology areas and in general, in the case of bringing science to bear on um, our development objectives. Next slide, please. Finally, I just have sort of one last thought, okay? While the title of the presentation was around climate science and innovation, and we've already discussed the robust returns on research innovations, and that makes those things very clear candidates, candidate answer to the question repurposing to what. The breakthrough report also provided evidence on tried and true practices that have been around for a long time. There's a lot of science, there's a lot of evidence backing them, but they've not come to scale despite what their scaled impact could be. You know, there's a number of reasons for this, but one is certainly that existing subsidy and support regimes drew us away from them instead of towards. But that is something that can change. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lorraine. And, and a great teaser there on the uh, on the digesters to solve the, the methane issue. Um, we're now going to turn to Will Martin, Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI, who is presenting IFPRI's work on this topic. And, and look at how policy reforms can reset incentives to adopt technological innovations, such as the ones outlined in the breakthrough report, but also look at how we can shift dietary choices to deliver some of the triple wins for people, the planet, and livelihoods. Over to you, Will. Right. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Um, <clears throat> right. So uh, a key element of our research program in recent times has been looking at the question of repurposing agricultural support. 
We're looking to get benefits for the planet in terms of sustainability, especially given the large uh, footprint of agriculture that Lorraine just mentioned, this large contribution um, to global greenhouse gas emissions. But we've got to be very careful about the impacts on people um, and the economic impacts. So this is based on joint work with a, a team at IFPRI, um, at the World Bank and now at FAO. Next slide, please. For the $800 billion question, what can we do better to support, um, to, to, with agricultural support, to promote sustainable tra system transformation? Now, this work is at the request of many parties, governments, um, the G20, the G7, the COP, um, the UN Food Systems Summit, the international organizations, the Bank FAO, UNDP, UNEP, um, and uh, important civil society organizations like FOLU, the Just Rural Transition. So <clears throat> what answers do we have? Well, for the moment, we focused on global, internationally concerted scenarios, how to repurpose to reduce emissions. We have to focus globally um, because this is a global problem. And we're very concerned about contributing to other development goals um, as well as improving sustainability. A key next step is country level work because the impacts of reforms are going to differ enormously at country level and the political economy of achieving reforms will differ as well. Next slide, please. So um, when we're looking at repurposing, it's very, very important to look at what the actual um, support is. As we've mentioned, 800, 850-odd billion um, nowadays in terms uh, of support. And most of that is for market distorting support to unsustainable practices. So if we look, um, the, the 317 billion in, in um, 2019, 2019 21, um, that's positive market price support. That's come about by raising consumer prices in order to, to generate higher prices for producers. Um, it's not budget support that can readily be repurposed um, to transfers. Um, there's another set of important transfers. That's the negative support provided in a number of developing countries where um, consumer prices, producer and consumer prices are held down through things like export restrictions. Um, that's highly distorting. Um, as well. Our main focus, though, is on um, the budget support elements, the 74 billion um, that's been allocated to uh, coupled support, distorting support, output subsidies, subsidies um, on inputs that are available, uh, readily available, um, in, in what we call elastic supply. As well as that, there are large amounts of transfers which are less directly coupled to production, things like the EU single farm payment. Um, in addition, we have 106 billion spent on general services. That's um, public goods such as research and development, rural infrastructure, extension. Um, these are elements of support that would be vastly underprovided if governments um, weren't to provide them, and which, as Lorraine mentioned, are underprovided given the large rates of return on them. There are also consumer uh, support, you know, like the US food stamps, 100 billion. Um, the extent and rates of support. Uh, very uneven across countries. Next slide, please. 
So uh, for this analysis, we used large-scale models with detailed uh, assessments, uh, able to make detailed assessments of poverty um, and food security um, with the Maragredet model. Um, we looked at one of the first uh, scenario we looked at was eliminating existing support, a very radical change. And what we find was that that leads to relatively small outcomes, small out declines in output. There's a rise in the cost of healthy diets. I'm talking about the little, the blue bars here. Um, there's a modest impact on emissions, relatively small. Second, we looked at conditionality scenarios. Things like um, the move towards organic agriculture, reductions in fertilizer use. Um, you, you farmers would receive support conditional on engaging in those practices. The challenge with this is that um, it reduces food output. Um, it can potentially yield large emission reductions, but those emission reductions are reduced by the fact that farmers have been pushed to lower yielding activities, so more land is going to be required at a global level um, in order to meet food demand. So that's, uh, that's the concern there. The cost of healthy diets also rises because of the reduction in farm output. Shifting support to green innovations, um, raising productivity, lowers emissions, um, <clears throat> higher food output, lower poverty, healthy diets, drastic emission reductions. So the, the, the green bars there. And this highlights the point that Lorraine made, how vitally important it is to look for innovations that improve environmental outcomes and also improve um, productivity. <clears throat> that also helps with adoption. Farmers want to adopt technologies typically that um, uh, have higher productivity. Shifting support to healthy foods is uh, also important and complementary, but as you can see, the small bars there, the last set of bars, the small orange ones, are actually um, quite, quite modest. Um, so next slide, please. So the implications, smart repurposing of subsidies can help achieve important societal goals, higher incomes, less poverty, lower emissions, better diets. Efficiency gains coming from research and development are critical to this. Repurposing is part of the puzzle. It's not a panacea. Um, we need to combine it with other interventions, possibly including demand interventions to reduce demand for products that are very emission intensive. Um, there are important political economy obstacles. The gains are global. Policies are national. This is a real challenge. We need to focus on that. And we need international coordination, but also careful identification of country-specific repurposing options. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Will, for an excellent presentation um, and, and highlighting that not all of that $800 billion can easily be repurposed, but a significant chunk of it, the, the budget resources could, could possibly be uh, repurposed. Um, we're now moving into our first panel, and here we look at, um, we, we know that international consensus and coordination around repurposing can play a critical role to encourage this kind of um, uh, shifting of investment at the national level. 
So this, this is what the speakers in our first panel will be uh, focusing on. And we will have a Q&A after our three distinguished speakers. So please do submit uh, your questions, continue to do so. You can do so on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. So I'm delighted to invite Bruno Brazil, a fitting name, given that he is uh, uh, with the Ministry of Agriculture and Livestock of Brazil, where he serves as the Director of Sustainable Production and Irrigation. And uh, Bruno, we, we all know that Brazil is hosting uh, or is presiding over the, the G20 this year, and you will also be uh, leading us into COP30 uh, uh, two years from now. Um, so we're delighted that you can join us and talk a little bit about uh, what you see as the G20 priorities on this uh, repurposing agenda. Over to you. Thanks, Charlotte. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you all. Uh, I would like first to thank the co-organizers of the seminar, CGIR, IFPRI, and BM BMZ for the opportunity to take part in this panel. In the following minutes, I'll share with you a little bit about the four priorities indicated by Brazil at the presidency of G20 for the Agriculture Working Group. So the first priority is sustainability of agri-food systems in their multiple pathways. According to FAO, it's estimated that over 700 million people suffer from hunger today. And also according to FAO, a sustainable food system is one that delivers food security and nutrition for all in such a way that economic, social, and environmental basis to generate food security and nutrition for future generations is not compromised. Building the international consensus is the first step, but the governments will play a crucial role in leading the complex process of transforming national food systems, combining regulatory measures with the direct interventions through public policies. In light of this, one of the priorities for the G20 is to enhance technical cooperation between countries by sharing experiences of public policies and governmental actions leading to transformation of food systems towards sustainability, reducing inequalities, adapting to climate change, governing land and water, and promoting the production of healthy food. It is crucial, however, to bear in mind that there is no single solution to promote access to safe and nutritious, nutritious food for all, nor a single agri-food system that applies to all countries. The second priority for the G20 Agricultural Working Group will be enhancing international trade contribution to food and nutritional security. International trade of agricultural products and food plays a strategic role in promoting food and nutritional security by expanding supply possibilities and balancing food distribution among countries, especially uh, in the context of climate change. Therefore, it is important that international trade and national food systems mutually support each other to ensure food and nutritional security for populations according to the specific needs and challenges of each country. It is equally crucial to overcome obstacles to international trade in ag agricultural products and food, such as 
distortive trade measures and arbitrary disguised unjustified bar barriers. This includes mitigating distortive subsidies and adopting transparent and evidence-based sanitary and technical measures. By promoting a fair and balanced trade environment, the G20 can expand opportunities for food exports, generate jobs and income in agricultural sector, and contribute to national and global food security. The third priority, recognizing the essential role of family farmers, peasants, indigenous peoples, and traditional communities for the sustainable, healthy, and inclusive food systems. Brazil's presidents of the G20 will be an opportunity to reiterate the urgency of policies that recognize the strategic role of family farming in the transition to sustainable, healthy, and inclusive food systems. Special attention will be granted to policies concerning women, youth, indigenous peoples, and traditional communities, with an emphasis on the importance of promoting horizontal and mutually beneficial forms of international cooperation as a strategy to achieve the SDGs. The fourth and final priority, to promote the sustainable integration of fisheries and aquaculture into local and global value chains. The global demand for fish will continue to grow. In order to meet this expansion, significant production increase will have to come from aquaculture, since world's fish stocks are roughly at the limits of maximum sustainable exploitation or even overfished. The Brazilian G20 presidents will seek consensus under two fundamental pillars. The first one, sustainability, the reduction of market distortions and reduction of overexploitation of fish resources caused by subsidies that are harmful to fisheries. The second pillar, equity, for a fair distribution of catch quotas and opportunities for fisheries development, reducing asymmetries between developed and developing countries. Thank you very much for the attention. Thank you very much, uh, Bruno, for that overview of, uh, of Brazil's priorities for, for the G20 agenda in, in around agriculture and food systems. So turning now to the World Bank, it's my pleasure to introduce Sergei Zoria, who is uh, the lead agricultural economist and global lead for policies and public expenditures uh, at the World Bank in the agricultural and food global practice. Uh, you will be speaking today, Sergei, about Food Systems 2030. Over to you. Thank you, Charlotte. So I'm waiting for the slides. So let's go to the second slide, please. Next. So um, the uh, there was a lot of uh, in the the previous speakers talked about their purpose, but I would like to remind us that it's um, this dialogue on improving the effectiveness and efficiency of policies and public expenditures is not new. Um, I've just uh, in included the uh, toolkit uh, we prepared in 2011 in the great partnership with the UK uh, defeat at that time. But what changed uh, over time is the nature of the problem, the extent of the problem. 10 years ago, our uh, work in the bank on the repurposing was focusing on making sure that uh, uh, 
our projects, investment projects, and the support we provide to countries is uh, aligned with the government expenditures. So now uh, we have the increased evidence of the direct and hidden cost of distortive farm support. Will Martin talked about it. And we look much beyond the World Bank projects. Uh, agricultural repurposing become essential in each country to transform food systems. And that's how we look in the repurposing the, in the World Bank uh, these days. Next. So we are uh, having the great partnership um, under the Food System 2030 Trust Fund uh, with the uh, German uh, BMZ and the United Kingdom uh, FCDO. Uh, it's a great, great partners. I'd like to thank them on behalf of the World Bank. Um, we do the global advocacy for repurposing. Uh, you can see the two reports. Uh, first on the repurposing agricultural policies and support produced jointly with IFPRI. And recently the World Bank produced the report uh, Detox Development, which was inspired by our work in agriculture. And look on the repurposing on the fuel subsidies, agricultural subsidies and fishery subsidies. So we um, we do, as I said, um, we do the agricultural global agricultural policy dialogues. They started in 2021 uh, with the objectives of the um, uh, support peer-to-peer -peer knowledge exchanges. We support a lot of upstream country diagnostics to translate global uh, aspirations in the local uh, location-specific uh, solutions. Uh, was mentioned, the previous speakers uh, mentioned that aspect uh, already. Um, there is, I think, the great understanding in the global level about the repurposing, but the solutions are local and the context specific. And we are spending significant resources and time on translate that uh, knowledge uh, through the agricultural public expenditure review. And the last but not least, we are uh, working with the five countries right now, uh, Bangladesh, Ghana, Malawi, Mozambique, and Tanzania, to uh, provide them resources for implementing innovative uh, repurposing options. And I'm really thrilled to have with us today Pabri, uh, Patrick Ofori from, from Ghana to talk about these developments. Next. But I would like to also bring your attention that uh, how that work under the um, Food System 2030 Trust Fund leverages the bigger uh, World Bank Group repurposing agenda. On the left side, you can see the list of uh, the country studies, uh, policy and public expenditure reviews, which we completed, uh, the, the 13 studies. There are uh, 33 ongoing uh, studies, and we have quite interesting pipeline of uh, the insights on uh, repurposing, including from the regional perspective. In the East Asia, we are starting the work on the, um, pub, uh, on the low emission rise and the Latin America and Caribbeans, we are looking on the fiscal cost of the agricultural reforms. So this, this work is influenced a lot what the World Bank does. Um, and more broadly, I would like just to give you the three, the three examples where the analytical work supported by the FS2030 has already led to agricultural reforms on the ground. Next. The first example is the Uzbekistan, where the problem has been um, negative market price support or uh, taxation of the agriculture. You can see on the left side, significant divergence between world market prices and the domestic prices for cotton and wheat. Historically, the analytical work um, completed in 2021 
um, was able to inform a lot of reforms uh, in the country, including the complete phasing out of agricultural price taxation. In 2022, the taxation uh, in the extent of 1.6% of GDP uh, was uh, phased now uh, was was phased out, and we are now moving to the dialogue with the government with the better price enabling environment. Uh, move to the reform of the public expenditures. Next, the example in Tanzania it's a bit different. Where you, we have the underspending on the on the on the agriculture, you can see on on the left side it's very very small amount of funds going to agriculture, and. And it's the impact is not is and the program design is not taking into account the need for the bigger climate smart agriculture support. So we produced the work jointly with FAO and the MAFAP team very recently, which led to uh, the launch of the agricultural project for results in the amount of the three hundred million dollars. Um, and so uh, with a lot of with a lot of concrete actions, which you can see on this slide. Which will help to which will help to improve improve the quality of the public expenditures and the impact on the ground. Next, uh, the third example is Zambia with the same with with the same storyline that we produced this analytical work on the left side, which led for the agricultural program for results uh, with the amount of the three hundred million dollars. Next. Uh, I, I would like to share with you the couple of lessons. Um, where which we need to take uh, forward. The first is the group of lessons on the left side, which was produced, which was um, come up through the work on the detox development report. Um, on the right side is the is the additional lessons. I just wanted to stop on one or two because before I go to my last slide, the first is that there is the often lag between knowledge generation and reform. We need to have patience. Uh, keep generating knowledge, keep uh, working with the champions, uh, but generate that knowledge, make them available for the champions when the time come and the possibility comes to do these specific reforms. Because even when the champions, when when, when uh, there is the entry point for reforms and we don't have, we have knowledge, this is the waste of the opportunity. And the final is that, uh, you know, we, we really can achieve much more if we link funding to the uh, to the reforms and I think what we are doing with the help of the FS twenty thirty is really helping us to move forward. Next, and next, please, and the last please wrap slide. up, Sergey. Thank you. And uh, so we are we are looking forward to the scale up our engagement. And here you can see five points of our um, attention where we will continue policy dialogues and we can continue to work with the partners on the analytical work and also on the financing of the repurposing going forward. It's at the core of the World Bank reform and we look forward to collaborate with you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Sergey. Um, we're, we're now turning to Debbie Palmer. Uh, delighted that you're with us, Debbie. Debbie serves as the Director for Energy, Climate and Environment at the, Common, at the uh, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. Also uh, very interested in the repurposing agenda. Over, over to you, Debbie. Uh, we don't hear you. You may be on mute. Still cannot hear you. I'm not muted. Now we go. Now we hear you. Okay, super. 
apologies, Debbie, you're in and out. Um, maybe while you fix your, um, your fix your setup there, um, we can, I can take a question from the, the audience perhaps first, or let's hear you one more time. Can you hear me now? Yes, now we got you. Go ahead. Amazing. I'm so sorry about the uh, the audio, um, but thank you so much. It's it's lovely to be here today, and I'm really honoured to join the panel. It's such an important uh, topic uh, to talk about, and I just want to first of all say thank you to IFPRI and BMZ for hosting the seminar. We you know we have a strong uh, strategic partnership with both institutions. We were really delighted at COP28 to be able to announce a new UK CGIAR centre on science. Uh, to develop and deploy innovative solutions to transform food systems. Um, so it's great to be here. And as uh, colleagues have already heard today, that the food system is being challenged as it's never been challenged before. We have a real task ahead of us. So the timing of today's discussion is really um, is sort of apposite. Um, to achieve sustainable agriculture and food systems that deliver healthy diets and dynamic, inclusive economies, we, we know we're going to have to address both escalating climate risks and escalating nature risks. And the ongoing food insecurity crisis is making this challenge ever more urgent. The UK has made tackling the multifaceted nature of food insecurity a priority in our recent International Development White Paper that was launched at uh, the Global Food Summit that was hosted in London in November last year. So it's front and centre of our mind. It's something we're really committed to because promoting a just transition to sustainable agriculture is a critical element of our approach. And we're going to have to address climate and nature risks in order to reach lasting food and nutrition security. So I feel as though so many things are coming together and we also saw the way in which this was showcased at COP28. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do and it's great to have all of these experts together this afternoon to really discuss the options. Just, just as the evidence has been growing of the extent of the challenges we face, so too does the evidence of opportunities and alternatives. And we've been we've been tracking that and spotting that. And we've heard a little bit of, uh, from colleagues from Lorraine, from Yo, from Will, from Sergi on on some of the things that have been happening. And, you know, government policy action and shifting of incentives and expenditures to support resilient, sustainable agriculture is going to be part of this puzzle and part of the solution. The agenda, as I said, feels as though it's starting to take hold globally. The UK was really proud to endorse um, at COP28 the Emirates Leaders Declaration on Sustainable Agriculture, Resilient Food Systems and Climate Action, including within it the commitment to revisit and reorient agriculture, public policies and support, which of course is at the epicentre of what we're discussing today. So we welcome this sort of building up of momentum. It started at COP26 during the UK's presidency. It's been maintained on the UK World Bank convened agriculture policy dialogue and, and, and it continues to build and build. And that agricultural policy dialogue, I think, does provide a platform for government to government peer learning and support. And that's aiming to build ambition, build partnerships and mobilise action on the policy changes that are needed for sustainable agriculture and food systems. And so I'm really proud. And it's, you know, as I said, it's been growing and growing and it's engaged over 50 governments since 2021. And based on the experience shared through that 
agricultural policy dialogue together working very closely with the World Bank um, we have launched three volumes of country authored case studies sharing experiences from policy action across the globe we've also published a set of policy briefing notes and those are highlighting the evidence base and the country examples of on shifting incentives for be it fertilizer use soil health and indeed payment for ecosystem services. And what we can see is that this work is highlighting the evidence-based solutions that lead countries are taking. And, and that can include incentivizing low carbon rice production in Vietnam. It includes innovative approaches to methane reduction in New Zealand, working in partnership with farmers and industry. It includes also scaling up climate smart agriculture in Zambia and even domestically here in the UK <clears throat> in England we are redirecting our funding for farming from uh, the previous system of area-based subsidies that don't promote sustainable agricultural approaches and, and uh, productivity to a new system that pays farmers for actions that benefit the environment. So we're in the UK, we are learning from our new approach and we are sort of building our own evidence base. But internationally, the UK is also supporting developing countries to take policy action and to leverage investments into sustainable agriculture, working in partnership with the World Bank. So Sergis, you know, talked to us about the World Bank Food Systems 2030 30 Trust Fund. But again, at COP28, the UK announced that partnership with the bank of up to 45 million pounds over the next five years to support a just rural transition to sustainable agriculture and, and ensure implementation on the ground. So, so there's lots happening, of course, as many of today's speakers have said, shifting policies and incentives is both complex and contested. And I really support Sergei's last point about needing to do the technical preparation and then grab the political opportunity. We know that farmers have got to be at the centre of our work as we do this. And since 2019, the UK has been supporting a range of work on a just rural transition to bring together food producers, governments, businesses, investors, civil society, indigenous people, etc., to try and champion those equitable solutions to food systems um, challenges. Innovation is also key, um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I know I'm running out of time, but innovation is going to be key. Um, governments have a key role to play in terms of setting incentives and investments. And of course, Lorraine spoke at the beginning on the agricultural breakthroughs and the need for uh, deployment and development of clean and sustainable technologies. So there's an awful lot happening in this space through the policy dialogue, through the breakthroughs, and we recognise there's much more to do, including on harnessing the power of the private sector, and we're going to need to step up the pace. But finally, just to say, the UK really looks forward to working with and learning from all the partners engaged in this seminar today to support tangible action on the ground and at the global level. And it's great that we're coming together and sharing best practice and learning. So thank you.
Fantastic. Thank you very much, um, Debbie. And thanks to FCDO for, uh, for all of the uh, support you're also providing to this very important agenda. So we have um, a number of questions here for our first Q&A. And I'm going to actually kick off uh, with a question for Yo. This was an anonymous uh, question that came in. And it's very fitting because you spoke in your opening remarks about the farmer protests that are happening in Europe. We know farmer protests are also happening in other places in the world. Um, the question is, why are farmers on the front line of pollution mitigation while billionaire private jet owners, villa owners and industrialists are not under such pressure? And then maybe, um, Sergey, I will come to you next. So just to give you a heads up, uh, also a very interesting question um, from another anonymous questioner. Uh, the question is that some countries have removed their distorting subsidies. Um, for example, Niger privatized the fertilizer market and uh, use of fertilizers increased dramatically. So can they now come to the World Bank and ask for support after they have liberalized? Um, but let's start with you, Yo. Yes, thank you. I, I think Alan may, uh, Alan Matthews may pick up on some of that later as well. The, you know, I think the uh, first, the, the issue, I mean, agricultural and food uh, and the food sector, food system as a whole, they are a major contributor to uh, environmental problems. And these problems have been, I think, um, somehow insufficiently recognized in the past. And so we are seeing now kind of with the global agenda on um, on environmental issues, climate change uh, mitigate, uh, climate change policies and, and restrictions being implemented, that this is now disproportionately affecting agriculture in a way because in the past uh, the necessary measures have not been taken. And this is, I think, affecting uh, agriculture as well, particularly because it is, it's, a, uh, it's a sector which is in, in structural decline as an economy develops. We see that farm numbers have been going down for century really in, in Europe and so this adds to structural changes that are taking place and so there is more than just the the, the, the one thing of it basically adds in, in addition to the volatility caused by fertilizer prices and etc I think it's a combination of factors which is threatening farmers in their way of life so it becomes much more than just an economic issue but also an environmental issue but really affecting it's like a, it's it's a state of of life. It is basically the livelihoods are under threat, and that I think uh, causes a lot of very strong reactions right now. And I think, but I think the issue, the Green Deal, which is on the table now, the move towards more environmental restrictions, is something that this is uh, the, the way to go in the future. And the problem has been that the necessary measures have not been implemented in the past, and therefore that the actions now are are stronger than they have to, would have been if uh, necessary measures had been implemented much earlier. Thank you. Great, thanks, Yo. And I, I think Alan is gonna get to some of these points as well in his uh, presentations in, in a little bit. So Sergey, over to you on the, um, are, you, are you willing to provide support to countries that get rid of distorting subsidies? Yes, absolutely. And, and, it's, and it's a great question. I think in the, Af in the Sub-Saharan African context, it's, it's one of these continents where we have the underuse of the fertilizers with the significant impl negative implication on the, the productivity. And it's great that in, in Niger, the first step in that direction was taken to open up the market and allow um, 
more uh, higher higher adoption of the fertilizers. Now to move to move to the next level, extremely uh, important to look on the on the complementary programs to really help farmers to get uh, the best outcomes and and use the fertilizers sustainably. Um, complementary programs include the soil testing, uh, soil fertility management, uh, extension services to convert that fertilizer, which is always cost farmers, but needs to be con converted into the benefits. So actually this, this, this strengthening the ability of the government to help uh, private sector and the leverage private sector activities to help farmers to achieve productivity objectives with the much lower environmental footprint that we had before, as yours has, has, has also mentioned, is one of the core engagement on the repurposing in the Africa region. So country like Niger uh, and other countries are really welcome to reach out our uh, teams in the country office. We have the country office with the country programs. That's where the discussion and the dialogue should take place. And we will be happy at the global level to support that dialogue. Over. Great, thank you. Um, Patrick, I know you haven't spoken yet, but I wonder if I could direct uh, an excellent question that's come in to you. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, technological innovations so far. The, the question from Angusam is, what are the agricultural technologies that can ease the life of farmers um, that are not so expensive, uh, especially in developing countries that cannot afford to buy some of these very sophisticated um, uh, technologies? And then um, the next set of questions I'd like to direct to you, Debbie. Um, Patrick Chatney is asking whether the FCDO could comment on how UK agricultural policy intends to promote sustainability and resilience for British domestic farmers. And, and related to that question is a question about, in your view, what, what will uh, uh, ensure stickiness of farmers adopting and maintaining climate smart agricultural practices once incentive payments expire? So uh, very, very good questions. Patrick, can I ask you to come on uh, on the screen to respond to that first question? Yeah, thank you. Um, I would wish you would repeat the question. I didn't hear it clearly, please. Yeah, so, so the question is, you know, we've heard about some of the innovations um, uh, that, that uh, Lorraine uh, presented. And some of these may be quite costly to adopt. So in your view, what are the, what are the kinds of technologies that should be prioritized um, if we want to move towards more sustainable and inclusive uh, and productive food systems in developing countries? Okay, thank you. So uh, rightly so that when we um, introduce technologies that are expensive or costly to adopt, um, we leave the smallholder farmers out, and then um, we don't eventually achieve our um, uh, set of objectives. So, what what I would propose here is when you look at uh, providing technologies that the smallholder farmers can benefit from. One of such what we are looking at here in Ghana is to provide smallholder farmers with smaller implements smallholder implement where you don't um, um, have to uh, spend a lot of resources to acquire them. For instance, if you talk about the ridges, you talk about the smallholder, um, small um, harvesters for rice production, for instance, you talk about, um, um, I mean, the mechanized, smaller mechanized 
equipment for use for smallholder farmers. And I think if we look at it from that perspective, then it will be more inclusive by um, uh, uh, allowing smallholder farmers to uh, assess this uh, equipment. If, if, if I've, I've addressed the question well. Yeah, thank you so much, um, Patrick. Uh, Debbie. Uh, sorry, we again have an issue with your sound. Are you able to? Uh, in the meantime, let me turn to, to Will Martin with a quick uh, question. Apologies, Debbie. Um, Will, uh, the question here is uh, countries have failed to agree on uh, reforms at the WTO for a number of years. Um, how can perhaps this agenda around repurposing be used to kind of create a little bit more momentum around the discussions on, uh, on domestic support? Oh, that's, a, that's a really um, important question. Um, I, I think it might well, I mean, the, the difficulty with domestic support um, has been a whole series of challenges. There are issues associated um, with public stockholding uh, and so on. So uh, a refocus of the issues on domestic support, looking for opportunities that are win-win um, uh, could be very helpful at, at the WTO. No guarantees, um, but uh, you know, the, the agenda needs um, to sort of move track uh, in order um, to move ahead. And I think this may be a very helpful way of, of uh, doing that. Great. Thank, thanks very much, Will. Uh, Debbie, let's try try you again. Yeah, sorry, Charlotte. Can you hear me now? Perfect. Super. Apologies, everyone, for that. Um, so you gave me two questions. The first was, um, if I understand it, about the, the transition that the UK or in England we've made, um, which was which is really about, um, you know, environmental land management and you know, as the when the UK left the the common agricultural policy, it has enabled an opportunity to sort of rethink agricultural support. And the approach that's been taken in England is about moving away from, as I said, area based subsidies that aren't directly linked to delivering environmental benefits, to 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 having a much more environmentally focused regime. And that was really in recognition that there were areas where support was either inefficient or ineffective and in some cases offering quite poor value for money and undermining productivity improvement. So, um, you know, really the new approach is very much about um, supporting the UK in its aspirations to achieve net zero uh, by 2050 and restoring nature and biodiversity, trying to improve water quality and soil health um, and, and indeed improving animal health and welfare. And I think what we see is that fertilizer subsidies in many countries at present encourage inefficient um, uh, use or indeed overuse, which in some cases is leading to declining efficiency of fertilizers. So the whole repurposing agenda is, is around directing to sp the support to where there are better long-term benefits from public resource, both in terms of productivity, certainly, because that's critical, but also in terms of environmentally sustainable practices. And if I may, I think what we've learned in the UK is that this is a pivot that is both possible and positive, but it does matter how you do it. And it's important to recognize rural livelihoods as you do this and maintain productivity and production. So 
you know, if you like, in a sentence, the key thing is to maintain farmers at the centre of the approach and really be farm farmer centric as you do it. On the second question, if I may, on um, how do you get reforms to stick after maybe the incentives and the financing has ended? Um, I suppose, in, in my view, it's like any really difficult, complex set of behaviour changes when when and you've got sort of you've got a lot of politics, you've got a lot of economics coming to play, and you've got individuals, and particularly with farmers um, globally, as we know, particularly smallholder farmers are very, very risk averse, and frankly, who could blame them given all the, the risks that they deal with? But but for me, you know, Sergey made the point quite well, talking about you've got to do the technical preparation and be primed and ready for when the political opportunity comes. As I said, it's about having farmers at the centre of the approach. And then what you would aim to do is use, use the financing and the support to support farmers to, deal, to look at, to understand the risks as well as possible and to really understand what the risks really are versus maybe sometimes perceived risks and to get them comfortable in that space to help, um, if you like, meet the challenge of upfront costs to changing practices and support farmers through that and then finally to support farmers with behavior change and support them to learn to do things differently technical practices etc cetera, etc cetera. and and if we can crack that and as i said if we can ensure the economic incentives line up if we can put farmers at the center of the approach and then if we can grab the political opportunity ultimately this thing has to work. It has to stack up. It has to stack up in the eyes of individual farmers and it has to work economically. If it doesn't, the practices won't stick. And that for me is the sort of the secret source at the centre of the Venn diagram that we're all aiming for. Thanks. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Debbie. Um, we'll move now to our second panel. And we're looking here at some country and region specific uh, case studies. And we'll start with um, um, with Alan Matthews, um, who, as we've just uh, indicated, will discuss the situation in the EU. Alan is a professor emeritus at the Department of Economics in, in Trinity College, Dublin. And um, Alan, we you're going to outline for us some of the very substantive reforms that have been undertaken in the EU, but also explain how these have run into some hurdles when it comes to their implementation. Over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Charlotte. And indeed, my contribution will focus on the EU's agricultural policy, what we call the common agricultural policy or the CAP, uh, and the Green Deal. And to try to draw some lessons for the repurposing of agricultural support agenda. I suspect everyone on this call uh, will recognize that uh, the CAP has undergone a series of reforms over the last number of decades, uh, from its original policy of supporting farmers through very high prices and dumping the, the resulting surpluses on world markets, uh, to uh, replacing that with uh, direct payments, initially coupled direct payments, and then more recently uh, decoupled direct payments. What I want to focus on is the most recent set of reforms. And um, there are really two dimensions to this. One is the reform of the subsidy system, the, the cap itself. But secondly, there is an increase in the regulatory oversight. And we might consider this as an attempt to internalize some of the external costs of agricultural production that have previously been mentioned. 
So to focus first on the uh, the subsidy reform. Um, so this was a, a reform which was um, started uh, in, in 2018, which was uh, finalized in 2021, and which has come into force since the 1st of January of 2023. And it has three main elements, if I could just summarize. The first was a shift from a compliance focus to a performance focus. So this affected both the member state administrations, but also the farmers. So the idea was that instead of uh, paying out uh, subsidies on the basis that you were complying with a set of detailed regulations and provided that you showed you complied, you got the money. The focus now is more on trying to look at the results, to look at performance and to pay for performance rather than simply compliance. A second element was a move to what we call in Europe a new delivery model. And, and this really reflects the, the multi-level governance of agricultural policy within the European Union. So the idea here is to uh, give member states greater flexibility to identify their own particular needs and to design the agricultural policies more in line with those needs. Uh, so uh, in the, 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 the policy now sets much more general objectives at EU level. Uh, it identifies a set of interventions uh, that member states can use, but the, the actual choice of those interventions and how to put them together is now left up much more uh, to the member states. But the third element is probably of most interest to, to this webinar, uh, and that is the shift in the uh, targeting of these direct payments. So if we look at the previous period of the cap, uh, around 66% of the total uh, uh, cap budget uh, went to area-based uh, payments. So rather passive payments, as Debbie has, has uh, rightly pointed out, uh, farmers get that funding, uh, whether indeed whether they are producing agricultural commodities uh, at all. That share of 66% has been reduced to 50%. So not as much as uh, what Debbie has talked about uh, has occurred in England, but a step in the same uh, direction. And that has allowed an increase in the more targeted environmental and climate measures from about 12% in the previous cap uh, to a doubling, uh, 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 in fact, a little bit more, uh, uh, sorry, did I say 16% in the previous cap to about 32% uh, in the current cap. So more financial resources being directed towards these more targeted uh, uh, measures uh, for farmers. But also a second point is that uh, the, uh, the, um, the obligations of farmers who receive this support have also been increased, what we call cross-compliance or now the sort of conditionality. Uh, so that has been strengthened uh, in the most recent reform. The other element that I uh, spoke about is the, the regulatory uh, agenda, and this refers to the European Green Deal. Now, the overall concept of the Green Deal is that it's a growth strategy, but for a climate neutral Europe by 2050. And the idea is that economic growth should be decoupled from resource use while protecting and preserving uh, the EU's natural uh, capital. And similarly here, we have two dimensions. Uh, we have a dimension uh, focused on sort of industry and energy sector, and we have a, a dimension focused on agriculture, land and nature. 
the overarching uh, uh, pillar here is the European climate law, which was uh, uh, accepted in 2021 and which does set that climate neutral or zero uh, emissions target for, for, for 2050. And the uh, element then affecting the industrial and energy decarbonization, what we call the, fifth, uh, the Fit for 55 package, actually has delivered quite a lot of what it set out to do. So in response to your earlier questioner, who sort of argued that uh, agriculture is being unfairly targeted, at least within the, uh, uh, the European Union, um, we do see uh, strong efforts to decarbonize the energy and industrial sectors. Um, and in fact, it's agriculture, which is a little bit uh, lagging behind. And indeed, that regulatory agenda has uh, uh, come against headwinds. And we've seen the farmer protests. And I might just sort of end by trying to identify a number of points which I think we can learn from this process of reform in the European Union that I've outlined. First of all, the role of timing is important. Uh, we've had the COVID uh, pandemic. We've had the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we've had increased weather uh, uh, uncertainty. And this has raised the profile of food security issues within Europe relative to that environmental agenda. We could argue perhaps that there has been insufficient communication of the implications of the reform. We didn't really have an impact assessment of a lot of those uh, changes before they were introduced. We've had perhaps insufficient attention to the losers uh, from the reform. The nature of ecological reform, it requires detailed monitoring and verification. And science can really help, I think, here to try to reduce that burden of reporting on farmers, which certainly has been a factor behind the protests. There's an external dimension. Farmers protest that if they are being asked to produce to higher standards, why do we allow imports uh, into Europe uh, produced to lower standards? And finally, I think we do see a weakened position of the, the champions of reform. And we will have elections to the European Parliament in June. And a lot will depend on the outcome of those elections, whether that green agenda will continue. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. I think you've um, really teed up here. I think uh, some of the, the, you know, this is front and center of, uh, of, of EU politics uh, right now. Um, we, we now move to Schengen Fan. It's my great pleasure to introduce him. He is the chair professor of the College of Economics and Management at China Agricultural University. He also serves on the CGIR system board and on the IFPRI board. Um, Schengen, we're really pleased to have you with us. And you're going to present uh, a number of scenarios looking at uh, ongoing reforms, uh, potential ongoing reforms in China and what they mean for the, for the Chinese uh, food system. Uh, thank you, Charlotte. Can you hear me? Very well. Okay, great. Uh, so it's a really great pleasure to uh, speak and this panel, I have heard quite a bit from previous speakers. I very much agree uh, on what they have said. So here, I just wanted to zoom into a country, China. So how China has changed its support policy and what are the challenges, what China can do better. So it is clear that Chinese agriculture support policy has changed over time quite significantly. Uh, before 2000, China basically taxed agriculture, taxed farmers. Uh, but when China joined the WTO in 2001, uh, 2001 that policy began to change gradually, uh, particularly in 2006, 
China abolished the agricultural taxes, which has been practiced for thousands of years uh, in the Chinese kingdom. And uh, the support to agriculture uh, began to increase, particularly a uh, price support, input, uh, is input purchase support, and uh, um, output purchase support, output, output price support, and so on. So, um, but up to 2015, the government has recognized that the cost uh, was too heavy, and also the subsidy has not reached to its targets, for example, protecting a farmer's income, uh, securing uh, food supply domestically. So starting from 2015, China began to introduce several um, reform policy, particularly to disney production with subsidies. Uh, they begin to uh, use so-called support and a protection subsidy to protect several key commodities and focus on conservations, soil fertility, uh, organic fertilizer introduction and so on. And of course, uh, the chemical fertilizer pesticides are still supported, but the support has been reduced dramatically, particularly the subsidy of uh, uh, fertilizer manufacturing has been abolished. Um, but uh, now, up to now in 2020 or 2022, 23, uh, the, the support has been drastically uh, changed or shifted, but nevertheless, there are still lots of challenges uh, remain that needs to be uh, to be solved. So just to give you some figures about agriculture support here in China, uh, between 2018 and 2020, uh, the Chinese total agriculture support accounted for 22% of agriculture GDP. But this is about the average, average of the, uh, is it, um, the world average, like 23%, higher than uh, 12 emerging economies, which is about 15%, and lower than OECD country support, like 42%. And um, the, the support has been growing over time. For example, from 2010 to 2020, uh, the growth has been more than 5% per year in real term. And also structure of the uh, support has been changed uh, from it's a direct support to uh, indirect support, budget support, general services. So about uh, 53, let's say the uh, direct support has come down from 53% to 46%. And the general support uh, has increased from 47% to uh, 53%. Now, uh, some of the uh, challenges. So emerging food security increased farmers' income. Uh, well, I mean, obviously some of the benefits. So food security and increasing farmers' income. So over the last uh, 10, 20 years, the Chinese food security uh, has improved quite tremendously. So the hunger uh, has been eliminated. Farmers' income have also increased quite sub substantially. Uh, now, the, the green for a grain for grain, a lot of uh, environmental support has improved uh, the afforestation, uh, the land use uh, conservation, and even uh, increased carbon sink. The the fertilizer and the, and the pesticide use have also uh, been reduced. So, but some of the negative impact, I think that the market continued to be distorted, whether it's output price or input price, and the direct subsidies. Uh, to inputs and machinery continue to exacerbate the, uh, the agriculture pollution and 
increased the, uh, the carbon emission and inefficient attention to nutrition and health. So most of the subsidies uh, do not have link to nutrition and health. So obviously the current subsidy needs to be reformed. And also this reform has to be linked to the national, let's say national goals objective, for example, carbon based carbon neutrality goals set up by the government and global goals such as WTO reforms and so on. Now, um, at, so I came back to China four years ago. Um, so we have built a model to simulate the how different policy reforms will help the food system transformation to achieve multiple goals that we all, all discussed, for example, nutrition, health, sustainability, climate mitigation, and inclusion to protect smallholders. So here is a model, the multidisciplinary and multi-sector um, data-driven, and uh, obviously it has lots of uh, links with EPRI, EPRI's impact model, EPRI's mirage model, and so on. So link traditional agriculture trade model with water, the hydronic model, climate change model, health nutrition model, and so on. And so we, we uh, shop or we, um, let's say, change the policy instruments. And through the model interactions, we will see final impact on nutrition, food security, health, inclusion, and resilience. So we have done several scenario analysis. The number one is to remove the total subsidy right now for grains, grains, wheat, rice, uh, soybeans, and so on. So by doing that, obviously, the, the uh, yield of rice, wheat, and maize will go down, and the country's uh, self-sufficiency rate will go down. China will import more grains. And the, to some extent, the, the both rural and urban nutrition uh, indicators will also compromise a little bit. So simply removing all the subsidies probably is going to do a bit harm in short run. However, if we shift all the subsidies from grains, from cereals to nutritious, healthy and low carbon foods, then you will see that, well, to some extent, uh, the yield of rice, wheat and maize may, may go down a little bit. Price may go up, but the production of vegetable fruits will go up and the prices of this nutritious, healthy foods uh, will also go down so as a result, the, the population's diet quality will improve and carbon emission will also go down by three, from 3% to 0.7%. So there are some trade-offs. Shengen, so I'm now, sorry, we need to, if you could wrap up your scenario outcomes, that would be great. Oh, that's the two, just the two. Yeah, so, okay, one thing is the, um, we introduced certain, there's a fertilizer practices, for example, by combining chemical fertilizers with organic fertilizers to use some of the latest fertilizer technology, for example, snow releasing uh, fertilizers and so on. And uh, the impact is huge. You will see that uh, the greenhouse gas emission will go down by more than 3% and uh, um, the, the yield of certain crops have not, have not been compromised. Now, uh, rice and the fertilizer are another two major sources of emissions. So we, what we can do uh, is to let's say, introduce certain factors to reduce the rice emissions, protective methane emissions, for example, uh, dry, wet alternation, direct seeding, and so on. The livestock, you know, we improve livestock feed uh, efficiency, 
livestock genetics and so on. All this will also need to reduction of carbon emissions by 5%, 8%, and so on. Now, um, investment. So in addition to shifting the, the, uh, the subsidies, we also simulated the, the impact of increased investment. That's investment in improving the, the land, high standard land, and also the double the investment in agriculture R&D, particularly increasing investment in fruits, vegetables, more healthy nutritious foods and more sustainable uh, technologies. And you will see the impact is huge, particularly in terms of carbon emission. Carbon emission will be reduced by 14%. So if we combine all this together, the carbon emission from, uh, from the agricultural food sector can be reduced by probably somewhere around 40 to 50% between now to 2060. And the nutrition, the diet quality will also uh, improve uh, for general citizens. Okay, I will stop over here. Thank you. Great, uh, thank you very much, uh, Schengen. And now we turn um, to Patrick Ofori again. Um, we heard from him briefly before. Patrick serves as the Deputy Director and Head of Monitoring and Evaluation Directorate at the Ministry of Food and Agriculture in Ghana. And you have a very interesting presentation um, on two phases of a major program in Ghana called Planting for Food and Jobs. Thanks for being with us, Patrick. We see you and yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, thank you. And good afternoon to you all. Um, my name is Patrick Ofori, as has been mentioned. Um, actually, do this presentation on behalf of the Chief Director, um, Mr. Paul Siame because um, he had urgent um, engagement at this last minute and I have to represent him. So I um, want to present to you uh, Ghana's new agricultural development agenda that is a planting for food and jobs uh, phase two. Um, between 2017 and 20, 2022, uh, the government implemented the PFD, that's the planting for food phase one um, with the aim um, of uh, to accelerating um, the modernization of agriculture in Ghana um, within the period, so the focus of this of this of this uh, phase one uh, uh, program was mainly to 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 use subsidies, direct subsidies, to promote uh, inputs such as um, fertilizer and seeds to uh, farmers, mainly smallholder farmers. Now, over the period, sorry, I can't see, I can't see the, the slide. The slides are not changing. Hello, can you hear me? Hello? Hello? Can yes, we can me? hear you. We can yes. see your slides. Um... Yes, so, 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 yeah, so, uh, we can go to the next one. So over time, uh, we we over time we realized within the period that um, there was relatively stable food security within the period. We saw, of course, some uh, marginal productivity increases for various staples. As a result, we achieved some uh, self-sufficiency in our major staples like maize, cassava, and yam. We also realized an increased um, uh, setup growth 
within the period. Um, that is for moving from, uh, we had an average of uh, 5.9 within the period 2017-2022. We also realized increased use of fertilizer from a low level of 8 um, kilograms per hectare to um, 25 kilograms per hectare, although below the um, African Union um, target. We also realized increased adoption of use of improved seeds by farmers, basically smallholder farmers. And we also saw, because there was high demand for quality seeds, we saw that the local seed industry uh, was, was booming within the period. Now, despite these achievements, we realized how the government's expenditure was, should I say, put it suffering in terms of there were high levels of expenditure on the inputs, especially fertilizer. At the point, uh, government uh, had to owe uh, suppliers for a period. And at times, um, resources will have to be uh, transferred from other um, import, equally important sectors to support the, the sector. We also realized limited adoption of the value chain approach. We didn't focus on that. We were mainly focusing on use of seeds and uh, fertilizer to improve production. So we were mainly focused on production to the detriment of um, addition, value addition. We also focused mainly, the program focused mainly on smaller, uh, smallholder farmers um, by excluding the commercial farmers um, needs. And we also realized that we did not pay attention. We were not strategic with the national food uh, stock that we'll have to uh, reserve. Then uh, last but not the least, we realized that because we did not monitor the program well, there were a lot of smuggling of the produce to our neighboring countries. And also people did their own, I mean, came up with their own input. So there were a lot of uh, adulteration in the system. So farmers, some farmers could, could apply their fertilizer, but over a period, they will not dissolve in the soil, having effect on the, um, um, uh, on the soil fertility. So these were some of the challenges. Now, to address these limitations, the PFJ-1 has reviewed, should I say restructured, to provide room for um, a model, an enhanced model, that supports the uh, entire value chain of selected commodities. Next, please. Yes, sir, thank you. So as a result, uh, under the leadership of the, 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 the minister, um, Honorable Brenda Champon, we, we came up with a, a second phase of the PFJ. And this PFJ, uh, this phase will deliver a smart solution to catalyze growth and transform the food and agriculture sector, we 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 the, the, this program or this phase will so we, we see a shift. It's a shift from the direct input subsidy to a smart agricultural input system, which is linked to a, linked to a structured market. And this um, second phase also uh, eliminate barriers to access to credits, increase productivity, stabilize food prices, promote commercial agriculture, and on and on and ultimately improve food security and resilience. The program focused mainly on 11 commodities. Maize, rice, soya, sorghum, 
under the starchy staples, we have cassava, yam, and plantain, vegetables, tomato, pepper, and onion. After extensive um, uh, uh, deliberations, because of their importance in the Ghanaian diet, importance for food security, providing uh, import substitution and for ex export and what have you. So these commodities were strategically uh, selected. Next, please. So we focus on the uh, key elements, key elements of the of the of the program. First of all, we want to look at the in the input credit model where we are moving away from a subsidy to a zero interest credit system. In this case, payment for credits received will be in kind. We'll see very soon a model, uh, we'll show you the model that um, described this in detail. Now, the other elements, important element is we, under this program or this uh, phase, we see an assured, improved, uh, high quality uh, input with other, um, with other, uh, 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 services for the for the farmer. So these are the five elements. Next, please. Now, before then, not before, before then, which uh, Sergi, I want Sergi says something. I want to I want to confirm that. Please be, go back, please. Yes, under the digitized platform, this is the platform that is a uh, uh, we call the Ghana Agricultural Agribusiness Platform. It's a it's an extensive integrated uh, platform, or which 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 under which we have the the network operation center covering all the actors in the system and also using the same platform to target farmers and also register farmers to, to be on the, on the program. Next, please. Now, this is the model. And um, I don't have much time, but this is a model where um, an uh, input supplier will provide inputs to an aggregator. Uh, an aggregator will also make sure that he provides uh, um, the 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 input that he has received from the aggregator to his his farmers, his his farmers, and then his and then this, and then at the same time providing uh, mechanization services, extension services, irrigation services to uh, the farmer. Then after harvest time, he goes back to collect the produce the quality of produce equivalent to the value of inputs and services received over the period. And he transferred this to a, a warehouse and the produce in the warehouse are traded on an exchange on the platform. It's, on, it's, it's, it's not physical, where we have off-takers coming for produce from the, from the warehouse. So off-takers taking produce from the warehouse pay their money to a financial institution, a selected financial institution. Who, who in turn also um, pays uh, the input dealer because the input dealer is giving the input to the aggregator on credit. So the, the financial institution is will provide a, again a, a letter of credit as a guarantee on behalf of government so that the input the input supplier is is, is not taking his money at the point of sale, but you're taking his money after the producer had got into the warehouse. So this is a cashless uh, system which we 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 are adopting um, in place of the direct subsidy. Next, please. Patrick, could I ask you to wrap up? Thank you. Yes. So 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 well. These are the effective impact. We're looking at creating job. Um, in, uh, we'll enhance import substitution and then 
income and wealth of fa fa farmers. And I must say also that uh, aside this, in addition to this uh, uh, program, is where we are adopting the uh, agricultural zones, where government is partnering with the private sector to develop contiguous land, where you provide infrastructure for for, for, the, for the private sector taking. Patrick, I think. Uh, Patrick, I'm sorry. I think we are losing your sound. So, uh, apologies, Patrick. We're going to move on because we've lost you. Your your sound is not coming through. So we're going to move to the next speaker. Have you got me now? Uh, yes. Just very briefly, wrap up, please. A wrap up. Okay, I'm wrapping to the last conclusion, please. Conclu I'm concluding on the next the next slide, please. Sorry. So we said this is a, a well coordinated, a structured, a value chain centered program that is central to uh, for us to achieving value for money for um, um, actors in the value chain. And also, we are saying that this requires an effective partnership and resources to achieve our noble objectives. Thank you. Thank you very much, Patrick. We're now coming to our second Q&A session, so please do keep the, 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 the great questions coming. Um, I'm gonna first turn to Bruno Brazil from Brazil. I love saying that. Um, we have two questions here. One is from Edward. Uh, what policies support fair prices for smallholder farmers to promote sustainability, given that you've highlighted the, the, the focus on, uh, on, on family farmers and smallholders in your G20 priorities? Um, and another question comes to you from Alimi Abdullahi uh, Adebayo from Nigeria. How can we encourage family farmers to participate in more sustainable food policy uh, and food security approaches? Over to you. Thanks, Charlotte. Two, two great questions. I'll start from the second one. Actually, when we design policies for agriculture and family farmers in Brazil, we put the farmers' needs at the core of the, the policy design. If we are talking about sustainability or environmental policy, we put the farmer needs, the family farmer needs at the core of policy design. We understand that's a locally adapted private activity. Therefore, we should provide them uh, science-based solutions and the right incentives provided by the government. I'm talking here about loans, rural credit, not subsidies. We are uh, assuring that that activity is market-driven and that could create a virtual cycle of investment, either from the government or private investment to leverage production towards a sustainable pathway. So two examples that we have in Brazil, we have a national program for strengthening family farming and uh, the, the government provides uh, loans for credit for those producers that adopt sustainable practices. There is a list of sustainable practices that we have in our sectorial plan. It's called the, the low carbon agriculture uh, plan in Brazil. It's been conducted uh, for 14 years now and we, uh, we, are, we have good results. We have been quite successful in, in executing and implementing that policy. And regarding policies to support fair prices for smallholders in Brazil, we 
as I have mentioned, Brazil usually does not use subsidies. It, it understands that using that you can distort uh, trade and also not provide the right incentive for competitiveness of the producers. Therefore, we the, the policies are based on loans and rural credit. And we also use uh, public procurement purchases by the government and public institutions, especially from products produced by family farmers to, to schools and, and hospitals and other, other public, public institutions in Brazil. Those are some examples. Great, uh, thank you. Thank you very much, um, Bruno. And um, we've had a number of questions coming up around fertilizers and they, they have certainly been um, mentioned several times in, in by the speaker's presentations. So the question comes from um, Dr. Srivastava from India and it's how can we feed uh, countries in highly populated countries like India without relying heavily on fertilizers and maybe I can uh, send this your way, Schengen, um, given that uh, China is a fairly intensive user of uh, fertilizers, but has taken some real measures. Um, and I think it's important here not just to talk about reducing fertilizer use, but making fertilizer use more efficient, more targeted. So maybe I can turn that to you. And of course, we also need to keep in mind here, uh, as Patrick said, uh, although Ghana has made some progress, they are still applying uh, only 25 kilograms per hectare, which is not enough. So it's not just a question of, um, of reducing, but also in some cases increasing um, plant nutrition. But Chengen, do you want to comment on, on that? Sure. Yeah, and thank you, Charlotte. I think the food and other efficiency must be improved. Right now, uh, the food and other application efficiency in many developing countries is only about 40%. So there's a great potential to narrow the gap. So what, what China did is to introduce higher, uh, more effective fertilizers. So you, you, you actually reduce the fertilizers use without compromising the yield. Um, and also in many countries, uh, particularly China, probably parts of India, they overuse fertilizers, overuse. So reduce the fertilizer application, even considering the current technology will not compromise the, uh, the yield. Now, obviously, how do you use fertilizers? Timing, the amount, and the right, uh, according to the right soil, it has a tremendous potential to do that. Some of the technologies, for example, use it, uh, the radar screen to screen fertilizers. Uh, sorry, the uh, the crop leaves to see whether whether crops do need fertilizers is very critical. So, yes, for Africa, probably more fertilizers used, but I I would suggest that more effective more high quality and in combination with organic fertilizer, we'll do much better. Charlotte, going back to you. Hi, I'm so sorry. I just uh, lost connectivity there for, for, for just a second. Um, I have a question um, that I'm going to direct over to, to Will, um, and it comes actually back to the WTO, Will. Uh, uh, Jens Munch, a former EU ag official, is essentially saying domestic support negotiations in the WTO are not going anywhere. Um, 
because US, India, and China are perhaps not ready yet to make a change um, because they prefer the status quo. Do you, do you care to comment on that? Again, maybe with this idea of can the repurposing agenda change this, uh, this dynamic? Yeah, yeah no, I, I completely agree with that uh, analysis of the problem. Um, and that was uh, my, my earlier suggestion um, that perhaps you know, changing the agenda, changing the focus um, away from a set of issues that where, where the debate has become very sterile and very bog, bogged down um, may be helpful. And that's going to require very imaginative work um, because some of the issues associated um, with repurposing will also um, involve, involve difficulties. Um, but particularly if there, are, if there is a focus on what's the best way that we can achieve these goals, particularly taking into account um, the fact that what we really need is more research and development focused on green innovations that can lower emissions, but at the same time raise productivity. And I think uh, Schengen uh, and Lorraine and a number of other speakers have looked at particular options, you know, the, the changing diets for uh, ruminants, um, alternate wetting and drying, both of these are win-win-win um, uh, outcomes. They're, 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 they're good for the farmers, uh, they're good for the, the countries, um, and they're good for the world. So if we could, if we could sort of change track uh, in in that direction, seeking solutions to all these problems. I think that would be a very positive outcome. Um, and it may help to refocus the negotiations. Thank you, Will. Um, one last question, and I will direct it to Yo if he's still with us. Otherwise, um, maybe Alan. Um, uh, somebody has said, thanked us for raising um, some of these issues around political economy um, for repurposing and, and asking what can we do next in terms of public outreach on, on this agenda? Yo, do you want to make some suggestions? Uh, well, I think that the whole uh, today was actually incredibly insightful in that way. I think particularly the points that uh, Debbie Palmer has made on uh, let's say on, on on the European agenda, but I think the, several of the points were more broad, uh, broader than that. I think also Sergei Zoria from the World Bank drew really important lessons on how things have uh, shifted and how uh, not I mean things in the sense that policies are changing, but also how this was possible in terms of lessons drawn, in terms of timing, combining things, providing information, bringing. Uh, different groups on board. I mean, making coalitions of not just of the willing, I think, but broader coalitions where you bring in those who may perceive themselves as being hurt, uh, hurt by or uh, by the proposals. Uh, basically, explaining them or putting packages together, bundling policies just to make sure that they are part of the those who see this as as a benefit going forward. I think both Sergey and uh, and Debbie made points on that. I think also Alan's point on a number of these issues were, were very valuable. So I think that's the lessons we have to draw from today's debate. I think it was very insightful in that way. 
Great. Thanks, Yo. And, and on that, let me thank very much all of our really distinguished speakers. Let me thank our audience. We had some great questions that I'm sorry we could not get it get to, but we will try to respond to those um, uh, after the event. Um, we have a number of um, interesting policy seminars coming up. The next one in this series uh, will be a very interesting stock taking of the climate change negotiations at COP28 and looking forward to um, what we can expect around food systems at COP29 as well as COP30. That will take place on the 27th of March, uh, part of the CGIR seminar series. And then uh, separately, we have an um, event on March 5th on the conflict in Sudan, and on March 7th for our Global Food 5050 launch, which looks at the role of women in some major um, food organizations. So please do check IFRI's uh, website to get more information on those events and wishing all of you a great rest of your day uh, or evening or night, wherever you may be. Thanks for joining us and many thanks for the uh, IFPRI's event management team as well. All the best, bye-bye. Mm -hmm.